Hi there and welcome to PowerPlay. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, prioritizing private care. Ontarians will always access health care with their OHIP card, never their credit card. Is Ontario's move to expand private delivery of public health care opening the door to two-tier health care? And how soon can this move clear the backlog of surgeries? We'll ask the province's health minister next. Then, Prime Minister versus Premier. There's work to be done on encouraging the government of Saskatchewan to see the opportunities that companies and indeed uh, workers are seeing. Did the Prime Minister snub Saskatchewan's Scott Moe with a visit but no invite on the Premier's home turf? Are the two leaders ready to negotiate a health care deal? Premier Moe is here live, coming up. Plus, recession worries, Canada's businesses surveyed and the news isn't great. We'll have a breakdown just ahead. It is one of the primary responsibilities of the federal government in matters of health care delivery to ensure that the Canada Health Act is always respected. Uh, that's what we're going to continue to watch across the country as uh, people are responding in different ways to delivering uh, better services to, um, to, to Canadians in health care. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Trudeau there, rather, reacting to Ontario's plan to expand the use of private care to alleviate the province's surgical backlog. It's a three-step plan. Here goes. First, the province plans to invest $18 million to cover procedures like cataract surgeries, MRI and CT scans at private medical facilities. Then, expand what kind of procedures can be done at those facilities. That'll include colonoscopies and endoscopies. And by early 2024, those private clinics will be able to perform bigger surgeries like hip and knee replacements. The government insists residents in Ontario will never need their credit card to pay for those procedures. Earlier, I spoke to Sylvia Jones, Ontario's Deputy Premier and Health Minister. Hi, Minister Jones. Good to have you on our program tonight. Thanks for inviting me. Minister, under the plan you presented today, how long will it take to clear the total surgical backlog in Ontario? So there is, um, as we mentioned today, the biggest backlog is actually in the cataract surgeries. And we already have existing in the province of Ontario a number of community surgeries uh, that do cataracts, most notably, of course, uh, Kensington, where we made the announcement in Toronto. So we are going to focus on expanding the existing ones first. And then as we have legislation and um, making some of the other legislative changes, we hope to be able to have the other operating new um, surgery clinics to be up and operational by next year. My, my question, though, is more uh, one so that Ontarians can see whether the plan you're presenting is actually as effective as you say it's going to be. And so by that, I mean, if the surgical backlog right now is 200, you know, 206,000 people are waiting for surgeries, how, by how much or how quickly might the, the things you're proposing expedite clearing that backlog? Are you looking, for example, at five years from now, 10 years from now, three years from now? Do you have any approximation of that? Yeah, no, we expect to be uh, much further ahead. So as I said, we are focusing on the largest number, uh, which is the cataract surgeries, and that will happen uh, immediately. There are uh, new and expanded opportunities for surgeries in cataracts in three locations that were announced, Kitchener-Waterloo, Windsor and Ottawa. So those will happen right away uh, and we'll work through that. And then as we see the applications coming in, we will assess those proposals and do expansions beyond existing uh, surgery capacity. 
If you don't, though, have a beyond the cataract portion of this, have a, a, any sort of specific approximation of how much this will speed things up, how do you know it's going to be effective? Because that's the sales point that, that the Premier and you offered to Ontarians today, right? The status quo isn't getting the job done. What we're presenting will be. But you're not able to tell Ontarians tonight how quickly that will happen or, or even sort of an approximation of when it will. Well, in fact, we have now said what the backlogs are, what the highest number is. And so individuals and Ontarians can start to track as they see those numbers go down. Uh, we will do that work with the partners in our hospitals, in our community uh, surgical and diagnostic centers. And, and we've already started that work. So I think it's also important to, to understand that this is not just one piece. We have also invested over $300 million and offered that to hospitals who are able to expand their own uh, surgical opportunities, whether that's through additional hours or, uh, or weekends. So all of that work is happening, and we are tracking regularly through Ontario Health where the backlogs are, how long the wait times are, because we understand that people want to get back in their community that quality of life that they're missing when they're waiting for cataract surgery, hip and knee replacements, et cetera. If, Minister, through the end of your mandate, you don't see a sizable difference in the, the scope of that backlog, uh, will you back away from an approach like the one you're pursuing as of today? I am confident that we are going to see improvements. We've already seen by um, investing the $300 million in hospitals uh, a decrease in, in the long waiters. Uh, we'll continue that work, as I said, but I am confident that these changes, these expansions, these new opportunities for community surgical and diagnostic centers will make a difference to those individuals who, frankly, have been waiting too long for some of these regularly scheduled surgeries. If, Minister, you've seen uh, a decrease in the number of people waiting for surgeries by increasing investments in public hospitals, why not continue on that track? Why is it effective a management of taxpayer money to go to for-profit enterprises? What makes sense about that? Because there is only a limited number of hospitals that we have in the province of Ontario. And frankly, building expansions while we are doing that, over 15 either new expanded or renovations are happening uh, on the capital build side of our hospitals. We also have the opportunity to expand what already happens in community. And that is these surgical and diagnostic uh, centers. So why wouldn't we do both if it means that individuals who are waiting get service, get that surgery, get that diagnostic uh, procedure done quickly. I think that's what people of Ontario deserve and expect from their governments. I certainly understand that, but, but I guess where, what I'm asking you to do is address the concern that a lot of Ontarians might have, that their tax money is now going to people who are looking to make money off of doing those procedures. That is different than what we're used to, and it probably makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. Well, respectfully, we have um, individual physicians who are private entrepreneurs who work in their doctor's office every single day, who have the opportunity to bill OHEP and look after their patients. There is no pathway where a patient and individual will be using their credit card over their OHIP card. What I'm saying is, isn't it valuable and important to expand on an existing system of over 
800 existing community surgery and diagnostic centers that are working, that are providing good customer service close to home and access to expand that model as well as what we've already done in the hospital system through offering additional incentives and financial opportunities to say, if you can provide more sur surgery, surgeries to, um, to, to shorten that uh, backlog, then why wouldn't we do that? What about if those financial incentives lure staff away from public hospitals, which you know very well are already dealing with major staff issues and major staff shortages. How will you prevent that? So we've already done a number of things that we've seen uh, bear fruit. That, of course, includes uh, internationally educated nurses who are in the province of Ontario waiting for their uh, license and ultimately approval. We have directed through the College of Nurses of Ontario to say, make those assessments quickly and make, when appropriate, uh, give those licenses out. We have seen in uh, 2022 the highest number, a historic number of new nurses practicing in the province of Ontario. So some of the things that we've already put in place, we are seeing bear fruit and uh, we have more uh, nurses, physicians practicing as a result of it. We're also doing some longer term planning because we understand that the population of Ontario is growing, we are aging, and we need to be ready. So we have done that through investments with colleges, uh, universities, and uh, the uh, Ministry of Colleges and Universities by saying we have a plan where if you want to train to be a nurse in the province of Ontario, we have a learn and stay program where we pay for your tuition and your right. books. That has had a historic number of interested people. We're the first government in decades that is actually building two new hospitals in the GTA. So we've done a lot of short, medium and long term things that make sure our health human resources are there when we need them. Respectfully, Minister, though, the Ontario Nurses Association says the province right now is short 30,000 nurses. Your own briefing document, Global News reported, uh, said that retention issues uh, arose from concerns about wage disparity via Bill 124, and your government is still appealing the court decision on Bill 124. If, in fact, you are pursuing all of that that, that you just mentioned, why not drop that appeal at the same time to send the right message to further expand on the efforts you're making to retain and recruit staff when there is a staffing shortage? Because while it is very important that we invest and ensure that we have sufficient numbers of um, individuals who are willing and prepared to train and work in the healthcare system, we also have to be fiscally responsible. And you know, I have to say, when uh, when we gave full-time nurses a $5,000 retention incentive program, that was exactly an acknowledgement of how challenging and how much they have stepped up during the pandemic. As but we Minister, sorry to interrupt, that, that doesn't acknowledge, though, the effect that Bill 124 had on it, uh, on that exact issue, on the issue of retention. Why continue to pursue an appeal on that when you know it had uh, an effect counter to what you want to happen with staffing in this province? We also have to be fiscally responsible, which would have exactly with Bill 124. And, you know, just last week I met with two internationally educated nurses and I asked them, why did you come to Canada? Why do you want to practice in Ontario? And the short answer is great facilities, 
great opportunities, and they want to live and work in the province of Ontario. So we're going to keep encouraging people who want to work, who want to be in the healthcare system, and there are so many who have done exceptional work, those opportunities, and these are other uh, avenues where they can train and do that work. Minister, I have to leave it there. I'm out of time. Thank you for your time. Stay well. That's Ontario Health Minister and Deputy Premier Sylvia Jones. The front bench is standing by to dig into the politics of that announcement. Later this hour, Miriam Monsef, Melanie Paradis, Kathleen Monk and Laura Stone will be here. First, though, a bleak business outlook today from the Bank of Canada with increasing fears of a recession this year as a backdrop. BNN Bloomberg's Andrew Bell joins us now to break it all down. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. Tell us exactly what, what the bank found in their survey. Some general level of confidence in the near-term future has dropped to the lowest since the pandemic. That's the bad news. But they, and they do expect, most of them expect a recession, but they think it's going to be mild. And there was actually another piece of good news in there that these banks do expect the inflationary pressure they're facing for materials, labor, you name it, to moderate in coming months. So that's good news as well. But the, these, these companies, companies across Canada are looking for some kind of an economic downturn or at least close to zero growth as we move into 2023. On balance, what does that mean for Canadians? Does that make it harder for hiring, that kind of thing? Well, it, it, one good, good, one piece of good news here, and of course, Economists are notorious on the one hand and on the other, but, um, uh, and I'm no economist. Um, but the, the fact that they do see their input costs rising at, at a more moderate pace does indicate that the Bank of Canada may have done a lot of its work. Let me quote from uh, TD, TD Economists. The survey data very much suggests that the bank may be quite close to ending its tightening cycle. Now, that came from TD Economist. We do get another Bank of Canada interest rate announcement on January 25th. It's widely expected to be yet another increase, quarter of a percentage point, after seven increases that we had last year. But the good news is that the inflation is felt to be moder moderating. Yeah. Let me just dig into that. For, we have a few seconds left, if you don't mind, because we are expecting that new inflation data for yes, last month tomorrow. Do you expect a moderation similar to what we saw in the U.S. last week? That's right, yeah. I mean, the economists are looking for the annual rate to drop to 6.4% from 6.8%. And by the sheer mathematics of the situation, we're going to start moving away from, we're going to start lapping those high inflation months of early 2022. So the annual rate is coming down. However, 6% is still way above the 2% or so that the Bank of Canada says it targets for inflation. Yeah, prices are rising, just not as quickly as maybe they were before. That's right, but I'm, I still am shocked when I uh, look at what I've got in my grocery basket. We all are. I go to a discount food store as well. That's me. No $30 full service. chicken, that's the big story. Right? Okay. <laughs> oh, Thanks, yeah. Andrew. Thank you. Bloomberg's Talk Andrew you Bell for us. Coming up, the Prime Minister was in Saskatchewan today for an announcement about critical minerals, but the Premier says he was left off the invite list. Scott Moe is here live next.
we've had uh, lots of uh, great opportunities to make announcements with uh, with Premier Mo over the over the years. Uh, the government of Saskatchewan is an important partner on many different issues. Uh, at the same time, we also know uh, there's work to be done on encouraging the government of Saskatchewan to see the opportunities that companies and indeed uh, workers are seeing in uh, a clean uh, a cleaner jobs in uh, the opportunities for cleaner energy project projects. Uh, these are things that we're going to continue to work on. But uh, I'm always happy to work with the government of Saskatchewan. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at an event in Saskatoon today there. He met with business and the mayor, but not with Premier Scott Moe, who released this statement ahead of the event. The Prime Minister's visit to Saskatchewan today to tour a rare earth elements processing plant is disappointing, but not surprising. It's disappointing, the statement goes on to say, because this is an area that the provincial and federal governments see eye to eye on. Yet we were not aware of the Prime Minister's visit. Premier Scott Moe is with us live now. Hi, Premier. Good to see you. Thank you for making the time. Hey, good to see you, Vasi, and I'm wishing you the very best as we are already in the new year. Thank you. Same to you and your family. I, I just want to pick up on, I, I think you could hear the clip from the Prime Minister when he was very directly asked, hey, why didn't you give Premier Mo the heads up that you were coming? Part of what he said was there's work to be done on encouraging the government of Saskatchewan to see the opportunities that companies and workers are seeing in cleaner jobs. Does the Prime Minister have a point there, Premier? I, well, most certainly. I, that's one of the reasons maybe we should uh, sit down when he's going to make the, the trip out to Saskatchewan as we produce some of the most sustainable products that you can find on earth. Our, our agricultural products have a lower carbon content than their, uh, their competitors. Our potash, for example, has half the carbon content of their competitors. And this very project uh, that we uh, have almost exclusively provincially funded uh, to this point, our rare earth elements processing facility uh, most certainly is going to be part of uh, providing energy security to uh, not only Canadians but also I would say to North Americans in in the years to come and uh, there are some opportunities and I would say uh, we will have this discussion at some point but it was missed to have it today on how we're going to advance uh, the rare earth elements processing not only in Saskatchewan but across Canada and across North America to ensure that we do have energy security in the decades ahead. Might it be understandable, though, that the Prime Minister uh, thought you might not be on the same page when, when you introduced something called the Saskatchewan First Act that would essentially, in your words, defend the province's ju jurisdictional authority over natural resources and protect it from Ottawa's damaging climate change policies? It's not like you really indicated you're hoping to play ball with the feds. Right, and the policies, many of the policies that the federal government is bringing into place are damaging and are actually are unrealistic if uh, these industries are going to continue. And it's always been our thought, uh, two things. Uh, one is uh, recognize uh, what we are already doing in our case in Saskatchewan in producing the most sustainable products available on earth. I mentioned potash with half the carbon content. Our canola and wheat in Saskatchewan have 65% lower carbon content than their competitors around the world. When it comes to field peas, we're 92% below. So let's recognize recognize what already has been accomplished uh, in, in this province and across Canada and other industries. Um, and let's also work together to ensure that we are encouraging uh, those industries to continue to invest, to uh, continue to have success into the future in producing uh, low, uh, more sustainable resources than we even are today. Um, but again, today, as I said, we need to recognize that we are, are global leaders when it comes to uh, producing sustainable products, in, not only in Saskatchewan, but I would put uh, across Canada as well. As well.
well. And, and so we may differ in opinion on some of these items. When it comes to development of, of uh, our, our Canadian and I would say our North American capacity to, uh, to process rare earth elements for those, those very battery elements for years into the future, I would say we're almost perfectly aligned. And, and it, therein lies uh, the challenge with the, the, the visit today. If I were to guess, though, uh, what the Prime Minister is getting at there. It's that the products, the critical minerals, r rare earth elements, all of that is crucial to a move away from hydrocarbons. It's crucial towards the move towards the greening of the economy. Uh, would, would it not be surprising that he would not think you would be fully embracing of that, given the uh, posture you've taken for all of the green policies that the government at the federal level has pursued? It, that would be a, that would be a false thought if he had it because it's Saskatchewan and the Saskatchewan government that has invested in the through the Saskatchewan Research Council uh, over seventy million dollars in uh, really the the only viable uh, processing capacity in the rare earth element space in Canada and and one of the only projects under construction uh, across the nation and so I, I said I was so disappointed. Do you think that, that the economy uh, is greening? Do you think that it is moving away from hydrocarbons? There, there is a transition that is happening. In the meantime, I would say that people should buy the most sustainable products that they, they can. I would put forward that those products are provided by and produced in Saskatchewan. Uh, as we transition, Saskatchewan most certainly is preparing for, uh, for this by this uh, very significant investment in this processing capacity, in this processing facility, of which uh, Vital uh, Metals actually has located, co-located really across the alley uh, from the provincially funded facility. And so uh, there is an opportunity to expand on that capacity that we're building in Saskatchewan, which isn't small when it comes on stream in the next year, year and a half, will produce about 6% of the uh, of the rare earth elements that will uh, of the global supply and so Saskatchewan is taking a, a significant step into this space of preparing ourselves for not only providing energy security today in the uranium and in the in the uh, the oil that we provide to North Americans today and the world today, uh, but preparing for tomorrow by uh, investing and investing heavily in a rare earth elements processing facility to center um, that production uh, right here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, Premier, I'm running out of time, but before I leave, I do want to ask you because I have you here about healthcare. And, and the sure. back and forth between the premiers and the federal government. Over the last week, both Premier Ford in Ontario, Premier Houston in Nova Scotia, have said, we're okay with conditions, with strings attached to new money from the federal government. Are you? I would say they're less, uh, refer to them less as conditions and more as to uh, shared priorities. Most certainly our prior priorities, I think, of all of the provinces are, are lining up and lining up quite closely uh, with the federal government as well. If we want to have a discussion about how we can ensure that there is accountability built into the system, there already is uh, much of this, but we could look for further accountability. For example, in Saskatchewan, we have uh, an e-health uh, reporting mechanism. We could, uh, you know, advance and, and really expand some of the work that e-health does on tracking some of uh, uh, not only our surgeries but other outcomes in our healthcare system, reporting those through to CAIHI, and obviously uh, then making uh, that available uh, to to all Canadians so that they can see uh, the the strides that we're making. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, we we and other provinces are already making the investments into uh, our healthcare systems to bring more people to the front lines and changing how we're delivering healthcare. Uh, what we need to do is sit down with the Prime Minister, uh, talk about yes. Um, some of these accountability measures, but also talk about ensuring that the federal funding is increasing so that um, the changes that we're making will be sustainable into the future. And that's the real question. It's a financial discussion to ensure that all of these changes that are happening 
uh, are sustainable, not just this year and next year, but for years and decades into the future. If I could, just before I let you go, though, circle again, <laughs> circle back to the first part of your answer, because I'm trying to, I'm really trying to, on behalf of Canadians listening, figure out if we're close to a deal, because the rhetoric from yourself and other premiers two months ago was like, no way, no how. It seems to have changed. Does this mean that there have been behind-the-scenes discussions taking place where you and the federal government, provinces and the federal government, are more aligned? And do you anticipate that meeting and a deal happening soon? I do anticipate that we are getting closer uh, to a deal. There are, are very few uh, behind-the-scenes discussions that are occurring. Uh, there are discussions that are happening uh, with, with other, at other ministerial levels as well, as you, as you can see and why we're uh, talking today. I, I, you know, the province, uh, the government of Saskatchewan didn't get a phone call to go to uh, the, the rare earth elements visit uh, when the, the prime minister arrived here. So we haven't been having behind-the-scenes discussions on health care. But I do believe we're close uh, to a deal. And I do believe that the federal government, and this is one of those areas where I think we're we're all going to work together in the best interests of Canadians, um, that we are going to get closer, much closer to, a, we are much closer to a deal than we were a few months ago, uh, because it is what Canadians want. And ultimately, I do see provinces making the investments. And I do see our priorities uh, starting to come into very close alignment with even uh, some of the discussion that's coming from the federal government and the prime minister himself. So I'm very hopeful uh, and hopeful on behalf of the folks I represent in Saskatchewan, but hopeful also uh, on behalf of all Canadians that we have a provincially delivered health care system uh, that is uh, really accountable to, to Canadians on what it is delivering and is uh, somewhat equitable from coast to coast to coast. Okay, Premier, on that note, I'll leave it there. Thank you for your time this evening. Hey, thanks, Vessi. Scott Moe is the Premier of Saskatchewan. Is the Prime Minister at odds with Canada's Premiers or are things closer than we think as we just heard there? The front bench will dig into that ahead. First, though, the list is next. Welcome back to Power Play on this Monday evening. This is the list, what's happening in politics today. The Prime Minister responded to a call from Canada's premiers to reform this country's bail system. We need to have a justice system that is effective in keeping people safe and fair. Um, anytime we make a change to the bail systems, there's uh, challenges around impacts, particularly on Indigenous or uh, minority groups, that we have to make sure we're taking into account. We all want... Uh, a system uh, that ensures that Canadians are safe in their homes, in their communities. Uh, and that's why we're looking very carefully at this proposal from, uh, from the, uh, the premiers. All 13 provincial and territorial premiers wrote to Justin Trudeau Friday calling for immediate reforms. They made that call following the late December killing of an Ontario provincial police officer. According to court documents, one of the people charged with that officer's murder had been released after a bail review in a separate case involving assault and weapons charges. Federal government employees are beginning their mandated return to offices. Public servants who are still working from home will now have to go into the office two to three days each week. The feds announced the move to union backlash back in December, and they're going forward with the plan despite calls for a freeze. Following two troubling reports, Alberta is overhauling its EMS services. We're increasing the number of ambulances in our busiest centres. And we're putting a new policy in place to get paramedics out of hospital waiting rooms so they can respond to the next 911 call. Edmonton and Calgary will get 20 additional ambulances during the peak hours in the coming months. That's on top of the 19 ambulances we've already added this year in both cities. 
the government is accepting the recommendations from two reports on its troubled EMS system. The province saw 911 calls increase by 30% in 2021 and response times increase in both Calgary and Edmonton. In addition to extra ambulances, the province will also pilot a program to allow paramedics to assess patients that can be treated on scene without being taken to hospital. At least 40 people have been killed by a Russian missile strike on an apartment in southeastern Ukraine this weekend. Officials say about 1,700 people lived in the residential building in Dnipro. 30 of them are still missing. According to the Associated Press Frontline War Crimes Project, this was the deadliest single attack on Ukrainian civilians since prior to the summer. Up next, we'll turn back to our top stories with The Front Bench. Kathleen Monk, Miriam Monsef, Melanie Paradis, and Laura Stone will be here. We're talking healthcare and Scott Moe. Stay right there. Back in a moment here on PowerPlay. Look at the backlog. Imagine if we got rid of all the uh, clinics. Imagine if we got rid of all the independent health clinics, all 900. You think waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning would be bad. We wouldn't be able to keep up. This is going to be safe. Uh, it's going to be regulated. You're going to have the exact same doctors that are operating in the hospital, operating here. We're going to let the serious operations happen at the hospital. Big move by Ontario's government to cut down on surgical backlogs. Is turning, though, to the private sector the answer, or is it too politically charged? Let's bring in our front bench to weigh in on that. Onward CEO and former Liberal Cabinet Minister Miriam Monsef is here. Former Communications Director to Aaron O'Toole and current Texture Communications President Melanie Paradis is as well. So is NDP strategist and Monk & Associates principal owner Kathleen Monk, as well as the Global Mail's Queen's Park reporter Laura Stone. Hi, everybody. Really good to see you tonight. Uh, Miriam, I'll start with you. Um, is this just more doing more of the same, as the, the Premier says, for a better outcome? Or is it opening things up to the criticism that the opposition is, has uh, levied today? Vashley, I think it's a terrible idea. I don't think it's going to solve the problem. We've heard from professionals that it won't, that in fact it will create other problems. What I'd like to know, given that these folks have a majority, that they've spent the last five years in many ways starving the public system and now further starving it, is if they were to go ahead with this, what kind of accountability and what kind of transparency can Ontarians expect? For example, who's going to own these privately run clinics? Are they Canadians? What standards are they being held to? Who's going to get paid and make money? And what kind of accountability is attached to that public investment in this private care? And second, as far as quality of care goes, which is the thing that I care most about, if my mom goes into surgery into a clinic, will she get the same or better quality of care in one of these privately run clinics than she would across the street at the publicly run hospital or not? And how are we measuring that? And if those two things, accountability and transparency, 
are not baked into the deal, then those uh, privately owned companies should not be accepting the money. But let me be clear, it's not a good idea. It's not going to solve the problem. And frankly, it's a missed opportunity to invest in wellness and public health and to diminish the demand on the system. So, some of those things, I think, Melanie, the devil will be in the details, right? We got to see how this legislation uh, is actually written. And if a lot of that accountability, which I think is a really good point that Miriam makes, is built into it and how transparent things are. Some of the questions are, are in the vein of what I put to Ontario's health minister, whose primary response was really, look, this already does exist um, and mm -hmm. it works to a certain degree. Do you think that that uh, argument flies? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that first of all, Canadians all across the country understand that our healthcare system is in, is in shambles and the status quo just simply isn't working. And so what Ontario has done is they're coloring completely inside the lines here. They're, they've realized we have areas where we can make improvements right now before the, you know, the, the deal, if it ever gets done with the federal government, that we really need to see progress on that, by the way. But what, what they're doing is they're allowing the facilities that are already performing these surgeries, that are already doing these procedures, to just do more of them. So none of this is particularly new. And I think that most, especially Ontarians, are quite familiar with this. When I was, when I was pregnant and my doctor sent me to have my blood work done, that was at a Life Labs. That's a private facility, technically. When the Prime Minister went and got his, uh, his, his COVID booster shot and his flu shot this November, that was at a Shoppers Drug Mart. The previous vaccines he got done at Rexall. Not, neither of those facilities are, are public. Those are private facilities. But you don't pay for it. It's covered by OHIP. So really, again, like I said, they're coloring inside the lines here and they're doing what they can within, within their limits. I, I like the way that Melanie said that, Kathleen, because that is basically how the government says, hey, this is not that much of a change. We are not using, you know, you're not paying out of pocket for this stuff. It's still going to be publicly funded. It's just going to be delivered in a different way. Yeah, but there are two major problems with what Premier Ford has set out today. One, he hasn't recognized that the heart of this crisis, of our health care crisis, is the fact that there's a health care shortage. And the creation of more clinics, more private, for-profit clinics, isn't going to help that short shortage at all. It's actually going to make it a lot worse. We have nurses that are currently working, forced to be working double, sometimes triple shifts. So what, now they're expected to what, take on a third shift, moonlight at a private clinic? You heard in that clip that you played before this segment, where Premier Four said, he said, the same exact doctors will be working in both locations. That just can't happen. They're already stretched too thin. So that's the first problem, uh, is the fact that we're not addressing the shortage of healthcare workers. The second one is that he it has not ruled out, nor did his minister when she spoke to you earlier in your interview, rule out the idea of a for-profit clinic. So they're going to welcome those for-profit clinics. Well, headline news, people who are in for profit have the responsibility to their investors to deliver profit. They're not into maximizing the benefits for people. They're into maximizing their profits. So that means, again, we're siphoning off more money from our health care system. Sure, Premier Ford will say time and time again that you will only have to show your health care card, not your credit card. But the problem is that more money from the public system will be siphoned off. We've seen it before with public, um, with nurse agencies. We've seen it before with long-term care. When this kind of money drains the public system and gets worse outcomes. Well, the caveat is, of course, if there are some rules around that in the legislation. I'm not saying there will be, but there could be, and, and certainly the opposition will will raise that. Uh, Laura, this is like anytime you use the word private in healthcare, it's like boom, right? It's a huge political issue uh, immediately. Do you think 
the Ford government will be able to circumvent the politics of this? I think politics will always be at the heart of this. I mean, health care is sacred to Canadians and public health care is sacred. And I think that you'll find from a wide variety of people, you know, from a wide variety of political stripes that they don't want that to go away. Of course, the argument is about how to best approach it. And you see the Conservatives here, um, as Melanie has mentioned, kind of broadening what they are already doing. Of course, there is a political risk here because, um, as you say, Vashi, it's a flashpoint to, to talk about anything to do with uh, private health care. But of course, uh, if, it's, if it yields results, I think that Canadians will also be uh, very forgiving people. I mean, we've seen um, over COVID uh, the challenges that the healthcare system has had. Kathleen talked about those staffing challenges. I think the board government believes this will in some way help that because it will create better working conditions if you know, more of these surgeries are moved out to, to different clinics. Um, you know, the challenge here will be, does it work? I think you saw today um, healthcare groups such as the Ontario Medical Association, the Ontario Hospital Association, and some CEOs of some pretty major hospitals come out in support of this. So it is not immediately as controversial as some of the other Ford government's move, recent moves, um, you know, such as the notwithstanding clause, for instance, and what they did there around education talks. So, um, you know, this isn't immediately something that is uh, controversial within the field, but uh, the proof will be in the pudding, whether this does help with those wait lists, whether it does help with the conditions that we're seeing in hospitals, and whether, you know, this is what critics fear is that kind of slippery slope, uh, yeah. that leads to more and more privatization. But I think Canadians are probably open to something that does help improve the healthcare system, at least well, in the short term. Yeah, we're pretty desperate, I guess. I, like you said, though, the proof will be if it actually does make a difference. And the only tangible outcome that they're promising right now is around cataract surgery. So we'll see if that changes. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break. On the other end of that break, the front bench is sticking around. Uh, we're going to talk about that uh, kind of tiff between the Prime Minister and the Premier of Saskatchewan. Uh, Scott Moe didn't get an invite to the event in Saskatoon today. The front bench will weigh in on that next. Stay with us. Welcome back. A simple visit to Saskatchewan sparked some disappointment from the province's Premier who says... He didn't know that the Prime Minister was visiting an Earth Sciences facility in Saskatoon. Is this just some hurt feelings or is it symptomatic of something more? Let's bring back the front bench. Miriam Monsef is here, Melanie Paradis, Kathleen Monk and Laura Stone. Uh, Kathleen, I'll start with you. We've talked a lot about the Premiers and the federal government and certain ones being at odds. Uh, the Premier Mo's point on this one was, hey, this is one area where we actually do get along on. Why didn't I get an invite? Do you think he should have gotten one? I think that Premier Mo should have just not gone out and not trust, gone with his first instinct, but instead slow his role. Like, <laughs> you know, he made this about himself. He made this about scoring political points. Uh, you know, Canadians are tired at politicians sniping at one another, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal level. And Premier Mo had an opportunity to actually extol the virtues of Saskatchewan and, and talk about those rare earth elements and actually like have a champion moment where he could champion more investment but instead he kind of tried to settle scores with Premier, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and it just came off as a bit of a tantrum. Sometimes you have to realize that your first instinct to go out and lash out at someone isn't the best and I think actually it reflected poorly on on uh, Premier Mo and uh, and actually was a lost opportunity for, for Saskatchewan. 
Uh, Laura, the Prime Minister said he was asked, why didn't you invite the Premier? He said part of what he said was there's work to be done on encouraging the government of Saskatchewan to see the opportunities that companies and workers are seeing in cleaner jobs. The kind of uh, not-so-direct way of saying we don't really agree on the way to approach a transition to a, you know, a green economy. Uh, the Premier said, hey, I do believe that transition is happening. We just disagree with some other stuff. Yeah, I mean, this to me had sort of a like, why didn't he call vibe with you know, from high school of, of you know, I don't know what you're talking about. By the phone. Yeah. Um, and I think the prime minister understands that if he wanted to, to have an announcement with Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, he could have made that happen. But he, he didn't. And I'm not sure that every time he visits a province, he, he needs or is required to appear with the premier if he has nothing uh, in particular to say at that time. Of course, we've seen these moments where. Prime Minister Trudeau uh, appears alongside, um, you know, some political rivals or, or parties from from different stripes. He's appeared with with Premier Ford in Ontario, for instance, but not every time he goes to Toronto. I realize it's it's the same province. It's not like he's traveling to Saskatchewan. But I'm not sure there's an obligation here for the Prime Minister to to invite the Premier out. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, yes, they may agree kind of on the foundations uh, of this concept, but they, they have differing views certainly on, on how to get there. And maybe uh, the Prime Minister and the Liberals didn't feel like opening up that can of worms today and having that conversation in public. Uh, uh, Melanie, aren't there some politics involved in this as well? I mean, uh, Laura mentioned when the Prime Minister appears with Premier Ford, many of the same people vote for those two individuals. I'd wager a guess fewer of the same people vote for Premier Mo and, and Prime Minister Trudeau. Mm -hmm. Well, Justin Trudeau is not going to be picking up any seats in Saskatchewan anytime soon. So I think that he felt that this was probably not a big risk for him for him to do. Uh, I think that politically, I mean, we, we mentioned in the last segment that uh, the, the provinces still don't have agreements with the federal government in terms of the health care transfers. And I think that this was an opportunity for Trudeau to uh, poke a premier and show I can leave you out in the cold if you, if the rest of you don't get in line and start making deals. Uh, and, I, and I think that, that it's really unfortunate that that's what this has come to in, in our political landscape. I don't think it's a good look for the prime minister at all. I think Canadians expect more. But again, he, he's doing this in a province where he has no hope of ever picking up a seat. So it was a low risk for him. Uh, Miriam, what do you think of the, the politics of it and then the actual like pragmatic aspect of meeting with the, with the premier? Well, I, I agree with Ms. Monk. Uh, let's look at the facts. The prime minister shows up to Saskatchewan on the heels of a very important set of meetings with the leaders of Mexico and the U.S. And he comes to Saskatchewan with good news on an issue that is a priority for workers and their families, for Canada's economy, and of course, for the premier. And this was an opportunity to celebrate that. Today was a win for Saskatchewan. Instead, Mr. Moe, and maybe he didn't see the release that went out. Maybe there was an oversight. These things happen. But instead, what we saw today, rather than a celebration of Saskatchewan and hope for the resilience and the future of its economy, what we saw was a bit childish. And at the same time, we heard that there's positive news coming on health agreements, We've seen in the past that the provinces, including Saskatchewan, can work well with Ottawa on issues such as childcare. I know for me, certainly, when I was woman's minister, we had a strong relationship with Saskatchewan 
particularly on gender-based violence. We saw agreements signed very quickly, funds transferred quickly. So if Mr. Mo was disappointed, I hope part of the reflection today is it was a personal disappointment because it was certainly a victory for Saskatchewan. And a better way to have gone about it would have been to pick up the phone and to speak with the office and to express that disappointment, but put out a statement that said, this is good for Saskatchewan, and I'm glad we see eye to eye on this. Well, he, part of, to be fair to Premier Mo, part of his statement was actually that we do see eye to eye on this, but, but I take your point on the rest of it. Laura, I just have a, a few seconds left. Look, if the politics for the Prime Minister are that, you know, he's, he's not going to get a lot of votes in Saskatchewan, the politics for Premier Mo are also picking fights with the Prime Minister usually works to his advantage. Absolutely. Hey, let's not forget Ralph Goodale. There's, there's still hope uh, for the Liberals. <laughs> He's um, in England now. But no, exactly. <laughs> Everyone's playing to their strengths here. This doesn't hurt Scott Moe, absolutely, to put out this statement. His, his supporters are not angry with him for, for standing up for, for what he believes is right. You know, the Prime Minister is, uh, he's not losing a ton of support by not meeting with Moe. And maybe he didn't want to come out there and start to answer all these questions about health agreements when, when they, the deals haven't been struck yet. So there's, there's reasons for everything. The Prime Minister's office knows how to, how to get a meeting and have a press conference with the Premier of Saskatchewan. And they definitely deliberately chose not to because they didn't have anything to say on this together today. Okay, I'm going to leave it on that note. Thank you, everyone, for all that you had to say on this today. Uh, Miriam Monsaf, Laura Stone, Kathleen Monk, and Melanie Paradis. We were just discussing uh, our interview with Premier Scott Moe. Uh, he's upset with the Prime Minister on the issue of that visit to Saskatoon, but not so much on the issue of health care. And that is today's takeaway. You will know that for months and months, the premiers and the federal government have been at an impasse. The provinces want about $28 billion or more in uh, health money, money going towards health care from the federal government to the provinces through what's known as the Canada Health Transfer. Just last week, we started to get some indications from both Premier Ford in Ontario, Premier Tim Houston in Nova Scotia, that they're open to some of the strings that the government wanted to attach to that money. We asked Premier Mo if he was and if a deal is close. Have a listen to what he said. Discussions on health care, but I do believe we're close uh, to a deal. And I do believe that the federal government, and this is one of those areas where I think we're we're all going to work together in the best interests of Canadians, um, that we are going to get closer, much closer to a, We are much closer to a deal than we were a few months ago uh, because it is what Canadians want. That's Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe with perhaps the most definitive answer in months about whether or not the federal government and the provinces are close to a deal on health care. He says they are close, that there are discussions happening in the background, not so much in the foreground, he pointed out, between the premiers and the prime minister yet, but he does anticipate that meeting between them will take place. You'll remember the prime minister had said, Unless you agree to strings, that meeting won't happen. Now we're hearing from three premiers, rather. This is the third one, that it is close to happening, that a health care deal is close to becoming a reality. We will keep on top if any other premiers, if they decide to make a similar announcement. Uh, that does it for us tonight, though, on Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thanks so much for being with us. We're back here tomorrow. Right now, though, I'm going to hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great evening.